this is something that uh, we're excited about, and uh, thank you all for coming out today. Um, we, we actually had wanted to do this in the fall of 2015, but well, we get to do it now in the almost spring, feels like spring, of 2016. Um, so uh, today we're... Um, going to have a, a few things going on. So we have two keynote speakers. Um, so let's welcome them. First, you'll be hearing from our uh, pastoral uh, resident, Recap Gray. So let's give him a welcome. <laughs> and then uh, we have our very own uh, community life pastor, uh, Pastor Larry Smith. <laughs> and, um, and then we'll have a panel of five um, uh, pastors and a Kemeny, and let's welcome <laughs> a Kemeny who um, is here, uh, who's very equipped and uh, has a lot to share with you, with you guys. Um, so uh, we know um, that the credibility of the of the scriptures is under attack in many different uh, spheres in our society, etc. We we know that. Um, but um, we, uh, we're here for more than just the intellectual aspect of learning and engaging, which we're going to do, but we're here for more than that. We know that um, there's a sort of a, a, a bigger picture um, in the sense that we're here really to open up our heart and our mind to be better equipped to be used by God to be his ambassadors. Like the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Yeah. So really we're here. We're, we're really just saying, God, like I, I want to be used by you to share the gospel and to be better equipped to do that. That's really why we're here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, enjoy all the different aspects of it. I'm sure you're going to be blessed and encouraged and edified. That's our goal. That's our prayer today. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, that's why we're here today. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you, God, just thankful for all that you've done for us, God. Um, Lord, we um, never want to take for granted um, what you did in sending the Lord Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be in a relationship with you. Um, God, we just give you this time, Lord. We pray, God, that you would um, just be in our midst, Father, that you would use it to help us, Lord, to be um, better ambassadors for your name, um, God, and, and um, Lord, that we would be able to engage the world in whatever sphere of the world that we mostly engage in, whether it's on the college campus or um, with coworkers or um, with our family, whatever it is, God, um, Lord, that you would just use this time to build us up in the faith, um, to be... Uh, used by you um, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. All right. Recap. It's all you. Let's hope this does not fall. All right. Um, well, how's everybody? Appreciate you guys all coming out. Uh, it shows that uh, you guys take the Bible and uh, the reliability of the Bible very seriously. Um, 
One of the reasons why I take this extremely seriously and I'm very passionate about apologetics, specifically as it concerns the Bible, is in my first year at Temple, I took a class called Intro to Bible. Along with that, I took another class called Intellectual Heritage. <clears throat> During these two classes, we, we knew a, a lot of Christians, a bunch of Christians, beginning in the class. By the end of the class, there were probably like three or four of us tops. And the question is, like, how do you take an intro to Bible class and leave being an unbeliever? Like what, like, what is being taught so much that you enter into a class all about the text that God himself inspired, and you leave saying, I don't believe in the God behind that, that text? Um, and I know in my class, uh, I, I mentioned this in the video, uh, my teacher was very upfront with us. He said straight up, like, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, matter of fact, I'd go farther and say I hate Christianity. And I'm going to try to teach this class in an unbiased manner. But if it slips out, you know why. Okay? Now, this teacher has not been fired for any remarks like that. It's not like his job is on the line for saying something like that. I mean, it was just natural for him to come up and say that. He wasn't a tenured professor. I mean, this was just a, a, another guy, and he was able to say something like this and for the class, especially those who didn't have the right background or a lot of foundation in this area, um, they walked away saying, well, if he has his PhD and he feels this way about the Bible, I guess I should feel the same way about the Bible too. If I want to be smart like him, he has his, his doctorate, well, maybe I need to change the way I look at the scripture. And uh, it, it was a very saddening moment to see a couple of people who were on fire Christians leaving, questioning their faith altogether. So how do we combat this idea? Um, and so let's, let's do this before we start, because I, this is very, very important for us. Before we start, we have to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, okay? You don't necessarily got to turn there. I should have it up on the screen. No? Yeah, what is, what is it? How does that work with me? Oh, how do I do that? Oh, this one? Oh, I do all of this. Oh, nobody helping me. All right. All right. No help. No help recap. No assistance. All right. All right. So um, before we start, let's look, at, let's look at this passage. I highlighted a few words that I want to point out. First of all, it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay? So the first thing he's pointing out is that this is a heart issue that he wants to deal with. This is not something that's just intellectual. We don't go into intellectual exercises by doing apologetics. The very first thing that Peter wants us to understand is that when we're making a defense of the faith, it starts with our heart. He says, honor the Christ the Lord is holy. So there's a person involved in this. Um, always being prepared to make a defense of apologian to anyone who asks you for a reason, a logon, for the hope that is in you. Okay? So we're making a defense for the reason. So while this begins with our heart, it doesn't just stay there. We don't just say, I believe in Jesus because I believe in Jesus. Get out of my face about it. There's a reason involved with this. And then it says, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Listen to this. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior. So he says that your defense, your reason should also be backed by your life. If you're out here just 
wanting to make cool comments on a YouTube clip that has people arguing about evolution and something, and your life isn't matching it, we, Peter has an issue with that. He says your life should match your doctrine. Your life should match your apology. So let's move on, and now let's jump uh, in. Did, I, did that work right? Okay, beautiful. I like this. All right. So why we can trust the Bible, boom, 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 external evidences. All right, look. So the way I'm going to start this is I'm going to do this in basically three parts. First off, I'm going to talk about worldview. I'm going to talk about how we defend the Christian scriptures against other worldviews. The Bible is a book full of doctrine that presents us with the way that we should think about the world that we see. And I'll tell you about what a worldview is made up of as we move on. But in our society, worldviews are new, normally looked at as a pluralistic issue. So we look at worldviews mainly as a way to God, for the most part, except for atheism. We'll get there in a second. But we look at it as mainly as a way to God. And people just think, okay, if it's all just a way, of God, way to God, basically we're just climbing up the same tree. We're just using different branches. Okay, so how, how do we actually, how should we actually look at worldview? <coughs> oh, <man. coughs> ah, ah, why is this? Oh, it's bad. Did, did he get, okay, I think he got the one, that's cool. We're going to work with it, though. I think he might have got the wrong uh, copy. All right, so look at, let's look at this real quick. <coughs> worldview. In religion, a lot of times it's said that it's all the same thing. I remember being on the block. I was talking to a guy right outside here on 17th Street. And he was telling me, like, the Bible and the Quran are all saying the same thing. They just use different names. When in reality, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, all have this idea of a self, listen, a self-understanding of how to get to God. So Islam is self-submission as a way to God. Any, any Muslim will tell you this, that you submit yourself to Allah and you will indeed find the way to God. Judaism, self-morality as a way to God. You live a certain way according to the law and you will find your way to God. Hinduism, self-abasement slash self-denial and Buddhism goes along with this as a way to God or to reach the fullest sense of yourself. But in reality, it looks a lot more like this. This is what Christianity says. God is the way to God through God's sacrifice on our behalf. You see how there's like no self there? Yeah. There's, a, there's a complete difference. So I, I put this little picture as a help. Like a lot of people think that on the inside, all the religions are the same. They just look a little different on the outside, kind of like two apples, a red apple and a green apple. In reality, it's a lot more like this. Both are round, both are red, both have stems. But a tomato don't taste nothing like an apple. If I fed my son a tomato, telling him that it was an apple, he would be extremely upset with me. And he should be. Why? Because they're not the same thing at all. So trying to mask this idea that all the worldviews are saying the same thing is counterintuitive. And so how do we go and look at what actually a worldview is? Well, here he is. It's called takes. So if you're taking notes or anything like this, I will write this down because this is very helpful. Everybody who has a worldview has a view on these five things. Everybody who has a worldview has an idea about these five things. And any text, any spiritual text, especially the scripture, will answer these questions. How does this person view God? 
How does this first, how should we view man? How should we view knowledge? How should we view ethics? How should we view salvation? Now, out of these five, it's clear that we're going to probably ask ourselves, okay, do, does everybody really have an idea about God? Like, like, do we say the same thing about atheists? Do they have an idea about God? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Atheism is really a way of saying, I, me, define the fact that there is no God. So if that person is the one doing defining, then the, the person who is at most absolute for the atheist is usually self. Okay? Well, let's talk about soteriology. Does everybody really have an idea about salvation? Like, does everybody really have this idea about how we can rescue this world? Absolutely. Now, a lot of times it's masked in doing a lot of humanitarian duties. A lot of times it's masked in environmentalism. And a lot of times it's masked in whether feminisms or a whole bunch of isms. But the reality is, is that everybody knows that there's something wrong with what we see around us and everybody is trying to figure out a solution to solve the problem that we see. Now, as we're looking at these five things, what we want to ask ourselves, this is what we want to ask ourselves at the end of the day. What religious text, what holy text, or what worldview answers these five questions in the most cohesive and sound way. I'm going to show you what cohesive and sound looks like next. Okay? So this is are the three tests of truth claims. And I would write these down too if you can. This is extremely helpful and I'll tell you why in just a second. First off, it has to be logically consistent. Okay? So logical consistent consistency. Does it make sense? Does what I'm being told actually fit together? Is it coherent? Second, there has to be empirical verifiability. Does it actually correspond to reality? And last, experiential relevancy. Does it matter in my life? Now, as we look at these three things, a lot of religions have basically two or one of these in full effect. Like some religions, make a little bit of sense. Um, I, I would say that for some people, Hinduism makes sense. I mean, it just, it just kind of fits together in a way that's coherent. Now, what we'll see is that if it breaks down in one area, it's probably going to break down in another. But the strengths of certain worldviews are found in one or two of these, not all three. So when we look at Islam, Islam is experientially relevant. It, it helps people cope with life. They, they, they're able to figure out a way to do this thing called life, even with all the suffering around them. It kind of makes sense of that for them. So it's experientially relevant, but it's not verifiable. There is nothing in the Quran that can be verified. They don't, he, he doesn't speak about real places and things like that. He doesn't, unless, of course, and we can get to this later, he's borrowing the story from the scripture. Stories that are outside of the scripture found in Quran rarely, and I, I can't think of one time where they have a place geographically or uh, uh, even a person or a time, time period that we can actually go back and look at and say, okay, Muhammad, like, were you telling the truth? 
Because there's nothing really verifiable. All of it was in his mind. And so when there's nothing verifiable, you could pretty much say anything. It might make sense. I can tell you right now, and this might make sense, that, yo, I'm about to go after this to the target on 17th and Diamond and pick myself up some new Hot Pockets to fill my freezer up, okay? Now I can tell you all that. It makes sense. It's a logical story. Problem is, it's empirically wrong. There is no target on 17th and Diamond. So as much as it makes sense, it's not verifiable, all right? So, <clears throat> secondly, um, atheism. Let's talk about atheism real quick. Atheism may be empirically verifiable, okay? So they talk a lot about science and verifiability and all of that, but it's not logically consistent and it's definitely, here it is, not experientially relevant. Atheism literally leaves one empty when it, term, and when it comes to trying to figure out life's experiences. This is why most atheists can't figure out suffering and evil. And yet they use suffering and evil as a reason not to believe in God. It's very circular. And so let's look at each one of these real quick um, as, we, as we find them. So logically consistent, what does this look like? God created rules, we sin, God provides, we respond. This is the basic layout of the, of the plan of redemption in scripture, okay? This is coherent, it makes sense. A self-existent God created. Why do we see everything that we see? A self-existent God created it all. We sin. That makes sense too. We're not trying to deny that there's a problem, not just with the weather, not just with nature, but with the very heart of man. Like man is not like really, really good and sometimes they get it all. No, man is just levels of evil. Some people are just a little bit evil, and some people are very evil, but evil is man's middle name. Can't get away from that, and the Bible doesn't lie about that. Well, God provides. It would make sense that if man's all in the same situation, and we have a God who loves man, that he would provide a remedy for that issue, and we respond. We respond to God's grace. That, that works. It's harmony. It, it makes sense. It fits together. And so what, I like this picture because if you look at the gears in the, in the head here that we have here, each one has to be working to have a system. Each one has to be working. The problem with most philosophies is they skip the motor part, though. For a gear system to get going, you have to have a motor or some kind of way for it to get started. So a lot of atheists will just basically skip past creation, give, give you the most illogical reason for creation possible and then say believe me on everything else so they steal our motor and then they start putting their own gears on it it's like no, no no you can't take part of my system and not take the whole thing if you want to take the whole system cool now we can have a conversation but if you want to take part of it don't borrow my motor and think you can have a gear train going doesn't work like that. And most systems do this. Islam is, is profound in doing this, but let's keep it moving. Uh, experiential relevancy. And you'll notice I bring up the Quran a lot because we're in a context that we have a lot of Muslims here. So I know this is a situation that most of us deal with, so I, I use the Quran a lot. Um, experiential relevancy. 
this gives us a mended heart if the text or worldview actually speaks correctly, prescribes, and describes our situation well. Now look at what the Bible says about the heart. I love this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. Who can understand it? He gives the answer right there. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Right here, we have a clear separation from anything the Quran can give. Why? Because our God doesn't just see the external actions of man, but he actually sees the internal aspects of their heart and decides how he will reward them. If you didn't catch that, notice what he says. He says he looks at the heart to give people according to what they do. So God doesn't even like look at like what you're doing. He looks at your heart and he says, oh, okay, even if you didn't do it, I already got you because it's right there in your heart. And I can see that. Other people can't. Other false gods can't. I can. Now, does the Quran claim to do something like this? Of course. The Quran says this, 964, the hypocrites fear lest a source should be revealed concerning them, proclaiming what is in their hearts. Problem is, if you notice these two texts side by side, the Bible actually describes what is in their heart. The Quran doesn't. It just says, be afraid because we might describe what's in your heart and never really gets around to doing so. So, what do we look at here? And I find this like a funny little quote. So I'm gonna explain the Viagra in a second, so please bear with me. But uh, listen to this quote. Uh, Abu Bakr Siddiq, he's a, a world-renowned uh, scholar in Islam. He says this, the word of God is the medicine of the heart. So what's the solution for the heart? The word of God. Well, look at what the Quran says about Jesus. Oh, Mary, behold, God gives you good news. A word from who? Him, who is God. Who shall become known as the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary? So you see this guy's prescription is the word of God. The Quran says that Jesus is that word. So he doesn't even realize that he's prescribing the very thing that he's trying to come against based on his own text. So I just thought the little Viagra thing was funny because we all know the story of Viagra. They were trying to prescribe a medicine for the heart. It had other solutions. And so uh, I just thought that was a little funny slide. I'll just move past it. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. I got to give myself like a little bit of relief from here, up here. So thank you. Um, now we're going to get into some very difficult material. So please put your thinking caps on. So when it comes to defending scripture, we see that we want to look at what a person's worldview is, okay? Understand their worldview and look for those three tests, logically consistent, empirically verifiable, experientially relevant. But how do we actually go about defending scripture, okay? I think the most sound way to go about defending the text of scripture with anybody we come in contact with is the presuppositional method, okay? If you, how many people have heard of the presuppositional method before? Okay, dang. All right, so put your thinking caps on, all right? I'm gonna try to work through this, okay? So what is this approach? Like, why do we even need this approach 
to understanding scripture, okay? Uh, or to defending scripture, rather. This is a quote from Richard Dawkins, who says this. Evolution could easily be disproven if a single fossil, listen to what he says, if a single fossil turned up in the wrong date order, okay? So he says evolution could be disproven if a single fossil shows up in the wrong date order. Well, in 1995, there was a fossil that was discovered in a completely wrong order according to evolutionary theory. We find a fully human skull that's dated to about 800,000 years ago. Problem, human skulls were only supposed to show up 100,000 years ago based on their dating methods, based on this philosophy. Did Richard Dawkins keep true to his word that evolution can be disproven by the finding of one single fossil outside of his time period? Of course not. As Soon as he found this evidence, what Dawkins and many other evolutionists did is said, though this looks like it is human in every way, we will decide to say that this is a different species. Okay? Now what this shows us is something very clear. That evidence itself is never enough to convince someone of the truth. This is why many get frustrated by trying to come up with the best cosmological arguments and teleological arguments of the existence of God, only to find that the person in front of them, who is very clear for them that this makes sense, the person in front of them says, I don't agree. It's not enough evidence. I need him to do something else. So what the presuppositional argument does is what Mike Tyson used to do to all the people that he fought when he was on his game. He would beat them before he even got in the match. Before he got in the ring, Mike Tyson had a way of intimidating them to show, listen, you've already lost this fight, why don't you just lay down? And so in the same way what the presuppositional argument does, it says, before you even get to arguing against the scripture, let me first break down your worldview to show that it cannot, it cannot account for rational thought itself. So if you can't account for rational thought by your own presupposition, by your own worldviews, then you either have to use my worldview to account for rational thought and then make your argument, or you have no argument at all. Okay? So how do we do this? Seeks to do one thing. Seeks to show that the non-Christian has to presuppose Christianity in order to even argue against it. Presuppose, if we're getting lost in that word, it simply means kind of to assume. Okay, so when you see presuppose, just try to work with assume. All right, look at this quote by Alvin Plantinga. I love this dude, man. It says this, the Christian philosopher has a perfect right to the point of view and pre, not, not philosophical, but pre-philosophical assumptions he brings to a philosophical, philosophic work. The fact that these are not widely shared outside the Christian or theistic community is interesting, but fundamentally irrelevant. What that simply means is that if we're defending the faith, if we're defending scripture, 
we have the right to presuppose some things as long as they're true presuppositions. We have the right to assume some things as long as they're true assumptions. The, the fact that we assume something and someone else doesn't assume the same thing, he says, is interesting, but it's fundamentally irrelevant, okay? So how do we actually go about looking at this? All right, rationale for approach. I'm gonna read this real quick. This is a quote from Van Til, he says this. We claim, therefore, that Christianity alone is reasonable for men to hold. It is wholly irrational to hold any other position than that of Christianity. You hear what he said? It's not that we're arguing with another person who's making rational arguments. For them to make rational arguments, they themselves have to assume the Christian worldview. Otherwise, they will be making an utterly irrational argument. Okay? Now, why do we go about this, this way of doing things? Three reasons. Both Christians and non-Christians have presuppositions that they bring to any debate. Okay? The thing that frustrates me the most is that when we find ourselves in a discussion with someone who is a non-believer, most of the time, this is most of the time, they act like they're coming to the evidence neutrally. They act like they're the ones who are objective. They're looking at all the evidence, and they're saying the evidence doesn't add up. The problem is that no matter what evidence you present to them, their own assumptions will decide that the evidence isn't good enough. This is why what I normally tend to do before we even get into a back and forth is I ask, what evidence would be good enough to convince you? Like, 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 let's be honest. What evidence would be good enough to convince you? Most of the time they say something arbitrary like, well, if God spoke to me in my hearing, in my ears. I'm like, listen, as much as you want to believe that, you would probably say that you're crazy if you heard that before you decided to surrender yourself to God. Why? They're presuppositions. It won't allow for a theistic worldview. And so this is why we go about uh, 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 along this method. So here's the two-step approach. Now we're going to get very practical. If I was in a conversation with somebody, whether it's a professor or what have you, how would I actually defend scripture using this approach? It's a two-step approach, um, kind of like a three-step approach, if you include the fact that the first step is that you must first recognize what their worldview is, okay? That's assumed. You got to know what this, world, this person's worldview is. If somebody says they're a Muslim, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Muslim who actually adheres to all of the Quran. As a matter of fact, I went outside of these doors on another street, I think it was um, 16th, talking to a group of guys. All of them told me they were Muslim. I began saying, okay, why? They say the Quran says blah, 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 blah. I said, but it also says this. They weren't ready for that. You know what they said next? They said, well, who is God? Because in the dictionary, it defines God as this. So we are kind of all gods, right? I said, I thought you were Muslim, bro. That doesn't fit with your thinking. He said, well, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I feel like we're all going the same place anyway. If you think you're a god, I, I said, I don't think that I'm a god, bro. You said that. <laughs> I didn't say that at all. Well, he said, well, man, I... I you know what, like, 
when I said I was Muslim, I am Muslim. You got to understand that. But Allah says, you know, you know what I'm saying? No, brother, I really don't know what you're saying, bro. I really don't. And he said, well, I, you know, I, we'll, I, I'll come back with some information for you, for real. I got you. It's like, in one conversation, this guy went from Muslim to pluralist to some weird form of, like, agnostic self-godism. All in one conversation. And so you got to first understand, like, what is the actual worldview of this person? Not based on one religion that they say, but this person in front of you. Because we're not trying to win arguments. We're trying to win people. If we're trying to win people, we got to understand this person's worldview. Okay? Second approach. So now we got our two-step approach after that. Show that every other worldview cannot explain rationality. And then finally, show that the only the Christian scripture supports rational thought. Can I catch up here for a second on my little slidey slide, y'all? Hold on. Give me one second, me second. All right, here we go. Thank you guys for your patience. All right, so what we're gonna do here is we're gonna focus on the K of our takes. Who can remember what takes was? Anybody so far? Cheating, you're cheating, Mike, already. <laughs> Go for it though, Go for it. You got it in your notes. Beautiful. So we're about to focus on the K aspect of takes. How do we believe that we come to knowledge and we believe that we come to knowledge through the scripture. All right. So, when defending scripture using the presuppositional method, there are four components to this approach, okay? The first one is this, that norms speak to absolutes, to a personal absolute specifically. I'm gonna break all these down. Number two, if God is personal and absolute, he would enter into relationship with us, okay? So if God is a personal God and he's the greatest being in that personhood, then he would enter into relationship with people that he's created for relationship. He wouldn't create us for relationship and not enter into relationship with us. Number three, God relates to us through verbal communication since he has given us this capacity, okay? And verbal, I don't mean voice. By verbal, I mean words, okay? Lastly, the Bible is the only viable option for a personal, absolute God. Okay, so let's first start at the first one. All right, norms that speak to a personal, absolute, all right? So what are norms? Define norms, recap. All right, here we go. There are three types of norms that we normally think of in just normal society. We have purpose norms, we have moral norms, and we have rational norms, okay? Now, what is a norm anyway? Well, a norm is just the fact that we have something that we're looking to, an extreme that we're looking to, the absolute that we're looking to whenever we have a conversation. So if I were to say to Pastor Larry, Pastor Larry, today, I know yesterday the sky was blue. Today, 
I feel like the sky is red. I just feel like it's red, okay? Pastor Larry would say something along these lines. You should not be thinking like that. You are thinking incorrectly. As soon as Pastor Larry uses the word should not or you should be thinking this way, he's talking in norm language. What he's saying is that there's a normal way to think. You're not thinking based on the normal way of thinking. So if there is a normal way of thinking and you're not thinking that way, what is this normal way? Is it based on what your teacher says? Well, no, because how many of us have are able to now judge the way our teachers think. So you go up the ladder. Well, maybe it's not just the teacher, maybe it's the professor. Well, no, because we're still able to judge the professor if the professor says the same thing. We can say that that professor is not thinking correctly. And so you can't just keep going up the ladder, going up the ladder, going up the ladder, trying to figure out where this norm comes from. The norm, at the end of the day, has to come from someone who is absolute. That means that all of our thinking is derived. It means that it comes from somewhere, okay? Well, let's look at moral norms, and this is the one that's the easiest to see. There's ways people should act, and there's ways people should not act. I love the example that C.S. Lewis gives in Mere Christianity. He talks about the idea, and I've come across this conversation. Many people, when it comes to moral norms, say this, that if I get hurt, or if someone pains me, what bothers me is not that it was wrong. What bothers me is that it inconvenienced me. So I'm going to give you a real example of this. I was on Temple's campus. I brought this up before. I was talking to a young man, black dude, by the way, which is crazy to me, born in a family where both of his parents were atheists. Now, this is very rare. I've never come across this before in my life. So not only, like, he's like, Second-generation atheist. I've never met a black person second-generation atheist, okay? So he starts telling me, like, well, you know, I just was grew up this way, and after I started looking at the evidence, it just kind of secured my thinking. I said, so, okay. Bro, let me ask you something about something that's been going on recently. At the time, there was a doctor in West Philly who was doing some atrocious things to babies in his care. I said, if that's your little sister... I, didn't, I knew he wasn't married. <laughs> didn't want to go daughter. He wouldn't be able to grasp that. So I said, if that was your little sister, would you say that was wrong? Like, look at me in my face and tell me you wouldn't say that was wrong. He looks me in my face and said, I would be angry. I might want to retaliate. But for me to say that's wrong would be a lie. It's not wrong. At the end of the day, at the most, it'd be a great, great inconvenience to my life. If you want to live with that way of thinking, just to get away from the norms of morality, that there is a right way to behave and a wrong way to behave, then that's what you got to live with. Most people are not willing to take that step. And so once you realize and once you're able to point out that there are moral norms, then very clearly you have a situation where there's an absolute morality, okay? 
So we have absolute thinking, absolute morality, and the last one is pur purposeful absolutes, but I don't want to go into that. So let's get to how we would actually use this argument. Pastor Larry, what, what's up with time? You got me? Cool, 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 cool. All right, so let's look at uh, def actually defending this, all right? So this is the basic breakdown of how you would defend scripture against an atheist. What you would say is first off, human reasoning presupposes absolute norms of rationality. There's a right way to think, there's a wrong way to think. We already see that we use that kind of language in everyday conversation. One of the things I love about Avin Plantinga is he says that if this person can't live with their worldview in everyday life, then it really isn't their worldview. Like if this is something that they can't live by in everyday life, then it's not their worldview. They're acting like this is their worldview. They're, they're, they're acting like they might be atheists. They're acting like this. But if they can't live by it in every single area of life, then it's not truly their worldview. So, norms of rationality. There are right ways to reason, wrong ways to reason. We need to distinguish between how people think and ought to think. Here's how I know the atheist, the person who's completely naturalistic, that believes that this whole universe sprang out of nothing by itself, can't, can't, can't live by this worldview on an everyday basis. Here's why. Because if their rational thinking came to be by random chance, then they themselves can't trust their rational thinking. Let me say that again. If their rational thinking came to be by random chance, then they themselves can't trust their rational thinking. And so whenever they make an argument against, against you, if their thinking and their argumentation comes from them completely randomly, then how can they even trust their own argument? It's impossible to be able to trust it. It's like, um, I love the way somebody else compared to it. It's like looking at a tornado. It's spinning around, it's going around, and it's going around in a junkyard, and out comes a daggone Lamborghini. It doesn't work like that. Rationality is built on something. And so if they're willing to say that it came randomly, then there's no way that you can trust it. The thinking itself is also sporadic and can't be trusted. So absolute norms of rationality can only arise within a personal context, very true. If absolute norms of rationality were grounded in non-absolute persons, I know this is technical, but I just wanna give this to you so you have it, then they would not be absolute. So if absolute norms of rationality were grounded in non-absolute persons, that's, i.e., like humans, if they were grounded in humanity, then they would not be absolute. Of course not. So therefore, absolute norms of rationality must be grounded in a personal absolute, and therefore human reasoning presupposes a personal absolute. We believe that God decides how we should think and how we should not think. All right? Uh, let's move uh, to this argument against Islam. I want to go to this one real quick. This is an easy one. And this isn't just for Islam, but this is against Unitarian theism. 
So the belief that there's one God, but there's no diversity in that God. He's one person, he's one being. If somebody were to walk up to you and say, listen, you believe in a trinity, that's whack, that doesn't make sense. How do you argue against that? Well, here we go again. God as the perfect being. So he's once again the absolute. Everything else is derived from it, including the way we love one another. Must manifest perfect love, okay? In himself. Perfect love necessarily involves love of, of another. No one would say in this room or outside of this room that perfect love is the love of yourself. Like, not even non-believers think like that. It's against rationality. So if it's true that perfect love necessarily involves the love of another, then, Houston, we have a problem. Because how does a God that doesn't have any diversity of persons within himself have perfect love? This means that he necessarily, he needs creation in order to exact his love. That means he's dependent and therefore he's not absolute. Only the Trinitarian God doesn't need creation to love perfectly for within himself are three persons. So therefore for him, he doesn't need to create to find his love. He's not dependent. His love is intrinsic to his, his person. Therefore, it is the absolute of love. All right? Therefore, God must manifest love of another. Therefore, God cannot be a universal, one personal being. Therefore, Unitarian theism is false. All right, we will have Q&A time, so if that was a lot, pray for me. Um, let's move on to this, and I'm going to try to get real quick. How much? What you thinking? 88 minutes. Okay. All right. Move through this real quick. So, empirically verifiable. I didn't hit on this before. I'm going to hit on this now. The reason why I don't want to spend too much time on this is that a lot of this stuff is accessible online. Like, for real. There's so much archaeological evidence for scripture that it's hard to even comprise it into one slide like this, into one situation like this. So I just want to point out some of my favorites that I think were cool. So here we go. Um, here's the outside, uh, the outside support, archaeological support. The Wall of Jericho. Now, person who, or one of the people in the group who found it, who found this particular site says that the walls were destroyed most likely by an earthquake of some sort. Now here's, here's the thing for me, is that uh, I was at the, um, oh my gosh, what was it? The Dead Sea Scrolls, yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Do you guys remember when that was here in Philly? All right, so I went there, and they actually talked about this in a, in a it was just a small little section. One of the interesting things is that as I was talking to the tour guide, they were saying that this was an argument against scripture. They're saying, see, like it was destroyed by an earthquake that we probably know was occurring during that time, not by some sound of the trumpets of people actually destroying the, the, the wall of Jericho. And I was, I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, 
as much as you think that you're supporting your worldview, I'm being more and more encouraged by everything that you're saying. Because the Bible doesn't say like it was actually the trumpets that broke this wall down. It just says that they were obedient. They did this. The walls broke down. And the way the Bible describes the walls breaking down sounds very much like earthquake language. <laughs> to me. And so this is one of the most encouraging ones for me because for the longest, um, scholars didn't actually believe that this place of Jericho existed at all. So it wasn't even like the wall didn't break down. They didn't even believe it was actually there. There was a place Jericho. So that's very encouraging to me. Um, I'll move by this fast. Uh, you can look this stuff up. Uh, this is a mention of Hezekiah. A lot of people didn't believe he was a king. Now we know he's a king outside of the scripture. Uh, this is about David. He's clearly mentioned outside of scripture. Um, this one was interesting because this one was recent again. And it's another situation where scholars didn't believe that there was an actual Pontius Pilate. So what they were saying is that not only is Jesus not real, but we know he's not real because there's no mention of a real Pontius Pilate outside of maybe Josephus, which we think has been doctored. Okay? So they, they, a lot of scholars were saying that this guy didn't really exist. Here we have a stone with the inscription of his name on it. Um, very interesting. Um, the writings of Josephus. How many people have heard of Josephus? I don't want to go over this too long. Yep, cool. A lot, of, a lot of things that the scripture writes about Josephus confirms. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. I want to touch quickly on the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the interesting thing about scripture, as I was talking about before, in terms of empirical verifiability, the scripture leaves itself up for critique because of the fact that it contains something that most other religious texts don't, which is clear prophecy. Like the scripture says very specific things and says that they will come to pass. And they end up coming to pass. But most other religious texts don't even actually leave themselves up to this critique. For the longest before the Dead Sea Scrolls, what many people thought happened was that a lot of the Old Testament had been rewritten in order to basically read prophecy backwards. So after the event happened, Someone was like, oh, it'd be a cool story to like write this down as though I was predicting, uh, that God was predicting this. Boom, 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 boom. Isaiah gets written. All right, let me just jump back into my time period, okay? And for the longest time, this was the like, like consensus among scholarship that all the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament, especially we're going we're gonna to see when it comes to Isaiah, who gets doggone specific with his prophecy, they were like, yeah, he was writing afterwards, claimed the name Isaiah just to give the Jews something to work with and actually just looked at what happened in Jesus's life and kind of wrote it in a fancy way. Well, is that true? For the longest, like I said, they thought this and they thought this about the book of Daniel, but the the most interesting find in the Dead Sea Scrolls is what they call the Great Isaiah Scroll. And I, I just found this fascinating. Actually, putting my eyes upon this, I was blown away by the beauty of this particular scroll. I mean, it, 
Just the fact that God reserved it in this capacity was amazing to me. Uh, but l- listen to, to some of the statistics upon this scroll. First off, it contains all 66 books together. This, this is not like 2000, not even 90s. Like when I was in school in 2008, I believe, is when I took this class. This particular professor told me, his mouth, that the second section of Isaiah was written after the time of Jesus. Well, what's in the section, sec, second section of Isaiah? Obviously, those suffering servant passages. So it's like, all of that was written after Christ was already here. What he did is he looked at the life of Christ, said, okay, I see the teachings about Christ, I'm gonna write this, bang, 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 then throw it in there with the rest of our old Isaiah. Here, we have the old Isaiah scroll, by the way, one of the oldest found in the Dead Sea. Contains all 66 books right there for you. Now, um, what, the reason I brought up my professor is because we have to be very careful that just because somebody says they're a scholar, to assume that they're actually telling us factual information. After I found this out, I was like, I was literally frustrated because I remember those kids walking out of that class in unbelief because he taught this as though it was true, as though it was a fact. And yet, he was lying the whole time. So we as believers, um, and, and I, I want to specifically say that how we help our next generation, we got to be very careful that we don't allow them to get hoodwinked by other professors and philosophers that act like they know what they're talking about when they really don't. Um, oh, website information. Just take, take that website down right there. It's a great website for the Dead Sea Scrolls. It has all the manuscripts from the Dead Sea that you can actually look at in photographer form. Uh, ah, man. Should I leave it for you? Okay, all right. All right, here we go. When it comes to manuscript support, and Pastor Larry's going to spend the most time on this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, I like looking at the manuscript support because a lot of scholars, this is a place that many of them don't try to argue. Um, They might try to argue that it's been doctored over time. They might try to argue, as Bart Ehrman does, that the way people looked at the scripture has changed. But one thing that they don't try to argue is the consistent accuracy of the New Testament manuscripts and the overwhelming amount that we have in terms of New Testament manuscripts. So when you look at these Uh, What I got here listed? Six? Okay, I was hoping seven, the complete number. Okay, cool. When you look at the six on the the side here, um, most of these, except for the Quran, which we'll talk about in a second, are seen as legitimate, very legitimate documents. Very legitimate documents. Like when you walk into class, there's no question about Plato. Nobody even talks about the questions of manuscript evidence when it comes to Plato. When you walk into class, I learn about Aristotle. It's taught in his, his language. I actually hated that, that class, but um, you're, 
you, you come to these texts and there's no question about manuscript evidence. Here it is that most of them have about at least a 600 year span between the time where we find the first copy. Now here's what's interesting about Plato in particular. I really did some research on Plato's just, just to see like what was actually out there. Um, it was said that somewhere around the year 1695 or 895, and nobody really knows, that's a huge span, but that there was found this, this artifact of Plato in Constantinople. When asked about, okay, where is this found? Like, how much did we find? Some people estimated it was half of his writing. Some people estimated that it was 25% of his writing. And some people just said we have the whole thing. That's not a good range. That, like, something smells real fishy about that. And so a lot, a lot of these uh, other documents sound a little bit like that. When you actually go to research in academic journals, they sound a lot like that. Whereas the New Testament, we have the doc, and I gave you guys another website too, csntm.org is a great website for actually viewing the manuscripts. But we have over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts in Greek alone, the original language of scripture, and then over 20,000 uh, other ones in manuscripts in other languages. Don't negate those, because that means that the New Testament was actually traveling, traveling at a fairly rapid pace. Many of these are written with, within the first three or four centuries of the original, many of these, not all of them. Um, and then with 99.5% accuracy. I wanted to talk about the Quran. I don't, I'm out of time, but uh, ah, I'm gonna just hand it over. All right, big goal. We are not trying to argue someone into heaven. We are not trying to replace the gospel with apologetics, okay? We are not trying to show how smart we are by bringing up all this data. And we're definitely not trying to show how dumb they are, although I have to confess, this is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> but what we are trying to do is help unbelievers and believers, it's for believers too, help unbelievers and believers understand that our hope is sure. We always return to the gospel. And... Um, if you look in your, your Bibles at 1 John, the way it opens up, opens up like this, and I'm closing with this. It says, that which was in the beginning, which we have heard and seen with our eyes, looked upon and done what? And touched with our hands. The, the, the scripture makes no qualms about it. This is not a fairy tale, as Dawkins would say. This is not something that we try to just play with, somebody came up with. This is a sure hope that the apostles testified to. And we have certainty that everything that we have in this text, as Pastor Larry will talk about, is exactly what the Holy Spirit inspired. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, Recap. Um, and Recap will be on the, on the panel in a little bit, so if you have any questions, of course, ask them. Um, that's why we have these mics set up, and that'll be coming in about 45 minutes.
So right now we're just going to take a quick five-minute break. Um, you can use the restrooms if you need to. We have snacks. They're ordered from healthy to least healthy. <laughs> so you'll see the fruit, and then eventually you get to the mega stuff Oreos. <laughs> so make sure you get those. Um, and then there's waters to, to uh, ease your conscience a little bit after the, the mega stuff. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll just do that, and then next up we'll be Pastor Larry.